Hi. Hi. I met Shelly this last Saturday. She was sitting at a bus stop in front of Mount Herzl, Israel's national cemetery. I, I know this is completely random, but I was just driving by here and I noticed that you were sitting in the bus stop here um, on Shabbat. Uh, yeah. The thing is, buses in Jerusalem, at least in West Jerusalem, don't run on Shabbat. I mean, I imagine you know, but the bus isn't really isn't really about to come. Yes, I know. I wasn't ex- expecting a bus to stop uh, here. I just, uh, I was on my feet all day and now I got tired and I wanted to sit for a while. Shelley's a sixth year medical student and she had just gotten off a long shift at the nearby Sharei Tzedek Hospital. I asked her what she thinks about the fact that there's no public transportation on Shabbat. A lot of people get really riled up about that, but not Shelly. Personally, it would make my life more comfortable if there was uh, if there were buses on uh, on Shabbat. But um, I understand that in Jerusalem it's more problematic than in other cities. One of the people who works tirelessly on solving this problem is Laura Wharton. She's a member of the city council from the left-wing Meretz party. I um, established something called the Cooperative Transportation Association of Jerusalem, and we now run uh, something called Shavos, which is transportation services on Saturday in Jerusalem. Shavos got a lot of media attention last summer, when it first launched its late Friday night bus routes. And why was it such a big deal? Well, Laura says, in a country where there's no separation of church and state, and in a city in which more than 55% of the Jewish population is either Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox. Basically, the situation was frozen in terms of public transportation and when, the, when the state was founded. Um, and our message is it can be done, because we think that people have the right to and should be allowed to travel as they want, um, whenever they want, and freedom of movement uh, is you know, a basic right, I think. So, yeah, in Israel, I guess, even something as innocuous as a bus schedule turns into a contentious battleground of beliefs, rights, and ideals. And that's because buses matter. A lot. There's no subway in Israel. Jerusalem has a relatively new light rail, and there's a bunch of trains along the coast. But most Israelis, more than 1.2 million people a day, ride the bus. So there's a lot of discussion and debate around buses. And it isn't just about whether or not there should be public transportation on Shabbat. You might have read or heard about some of the recent cases of gender segregation on bus lines here. Tonight there's a big storm brewing in Israel. It has to do with seating on public buses. On a bus to Jerusalem, an Orthodox Jew told her, you're a woman, go sit at the back of the that bus. until one woman refused to move. It certainly might remind a lot of folks of a woman who took a stand in this country more than 50 years ago. Every day there was something in the news about what's happening in the buses because secular people and religious people were fighting. You're right, you're wrong. That's Yair Ettinger. He's a correspondent for the Israeli daily Haaretz and writes mainly about the ultra-Orthodox community. Yair spent a lot of time covering the struggles on buses. So everything, it, it became... Like, really crazy. What happened next was that people went to court and said, this is illegal. So we've got tension around buses on Shabbat. Tension around where men and women can or cannot sit on the bus. 
And there is, of course, a whole other anxiety about buses. And back to this news in Jerusalem, we were told that a, a bomb exploded on board a bus. explosion took place near the central bus station. That's the main hub where all the buses come in and out of right at the entrance of Jerusalem. The explosion... Suicide bombings were an inseparable part of growing up here in Israel in the 90s. When I was a kid taking buses to elementary school or junior high, that was the single most talked about thing at home. My parents would tell me where to sit, where not to sit, what to look for. You know, when you're that age, you don't really think that much about danger or dying. But I remember constantly surveying the people on the bus, wondering whether these would be the last people I ever saw. Recently, buses have become the focal point of attention for another reason. There was a short-lived attempt by the Minister of Defense to create segregated bus lines for Palestinian workers coming from the West Bank. I'm going to take you now to an uproar over an Israeli program that critics say compares to apartheid. Benjamin Netanyahu's government under pressure once again after a new defense plan. only bus lines. segregation taken right out of the apartheid era. So buses are, clearly, a place where deep social tensions play out on a daily basis. And in a sense, Suhila Fadila embodies all those tensions. Suhila drives the number 17 bus in Kfar Saba. She isn't just one of only a handful of female drivers. She's also the only driver who shows up to work in a hijab. All the time the passengers is uh, so happy and uh, at the same time they surprised when they see that the driver is a woman and I'm Arabic and I with hijab. Suhila also encountered hostility. There was one time she told us when two soldiers wouldn't get on her bus because she was a Muslim. But she chooses to focus on the positive side of her job. I smile and uh, I respect my passenger. And they, they, um, uh, game, uh, and they proud uh, that I'm uh, a driver from uh, Tira, a woman driver from Tira. And uh, I have uh, now many, many passengers who are uh, now, uh, we are uh, friends uh, with me. This, uh, really. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. In our episode today, Stop That Bus! We've got two stories about buses. But neither of them is about terrorist attacks or religious segregation. Our first story is about a bus station which is, really, a microcosm of the whole country. And our second act, which you won't want to miss, is one of the favorite stories of one of our favorite contributors, writer Edgar Keret. If you've ever taken a bus to or from Tel Aviv's new central bus station, chances are you haven't forgotten the experience. It's one of the most bizarre and magical and disgusting and enchanting places you can imagine. It's dirty and smelly and feels depressing. 
poor, deserted, but at the same time it's colorful and full of life. They're vendors, foreign workers, and refugees from all over the world. Filipinos, European. Iraq, Greece, Sudan, South Sudan, Eritrea, China, Morocco, Brazilian. On the fourth floor, in what's called Manila Avenue, you can stuff yourself with homemade pan-fried lumpia that Filipino caregivers sell on their day off. If you turn the corner, an old-timer might drag you into the Netzach David synagogue to complete a minyan, after which you can meander past tattoo parlors, churches, the free STD clinic, Eritrean brides getting their hair braided, the Israeli-Filipino matchmaking agency, fringe theater spaces, and end up at a giant Yiddish book library. If you're long-time Israel Story listeners, you might actually remember Mendy and his Jung Yiddish kingdom from our episode People of the Book. The bus station is dizzying. In fact, it's almost impossible not to get lost there. For a long time, it was the largest central bus station in the world. That's right, in the world. Here in Israel, a country with a population not much larger than Papua New Guinea's. But then, in 2010, things returned to their natural state of being. The New Delhi Millennium Park bus depot opened up. But what's probably most interesting about the new central bus station in Tel Aviv is that it's sort of a layered fossil of the history of Israel. If archaeologists or sociologists were to start picking it apart, they'd find remnants of every phase in the short story of this state. From independence, through post-war euphoria, to recession and westernization, they'd be able to trace the waves of immigration to Israel, from Europe and North Africa all the way to the African asylum seekers that have been in the news so much in recent years. So in many ways, the story of Tel Aviv's new central bus station is the story of Israel. Act 1, The White Elephant. Here's Yochai Meital. There isn't a single thing I like about this station. Everything here is worthless. Believe me, I'm here because I have no other choice. That's Ilan. He bought a store in Tel Aviv's new central bus station in the early 90s, even before it opened. He dreamt of eventually passing it on to his children. I bought it as an investment 20 years ago. Now I'm stuck here. No matter what happens, I'm stuck. Paying taxes, utility bills, office fees. This place ruined me. Ilan's store has been closed for years because no one hangs out anymore at the far end of the fourth floor, where a huge supermarket used to stand. And Ilan is just one of hundreds of vendors who paid good money to purchase a store here and who are, today, stuck with a property that's worth absolutely nothing. I met Ilan in a section of the station called the Ramlod Market on the third floor. He was moonlighting, selling baby clothes to Eritrean refugees at a friend's stall, trying to make up for the lost income from his out-of-business shop. Most of the stalls around him are abandoned. Old newspapers are glued to the display windows of nearby storefronts. If you come close, you can make out headlines about the 2003 Columbia space shuttle disaster or the disengagement from Gaza in 2005. The ceilings are covered with black soot. Bored peddlers anxiously smoke cigarettes right underneath an old sign that says no smoking. 
and the smell of nicotine blends into the stench of urine, sweat, and diesel fumes. What can I say? It's depressing to hang out with the vendors of the Tachana Merkazita Chadasha, Tel Aviv's new central bus station. The structure itself is terribly confusing, and that's no coincidence. It was designed to make people get lost. The labyrinth, it was coined by the station's chief architect, Ram Karmi. And in a labyrinth, you get lost. You know how you get in, but you have no idea how you get out, or even if you get out. That's Rivka Karmi. I'm an architect, and I'm the widow of uh, Ram Karmi. Rami always said that a good city is a city you get lost in. And he imagined the central bus station as a city under a roof. So if it is a city under a roof, why shouldn't we get a little bit lost inside? So in order to help me get lost in an, I don't know, slightly more organized fashion, I teamed up with an energetic architectural duo. Hi, I'm Talia Davidi. My name is Elad Horn. I'm an architect from Israel. I'm an Israeli architect as well. And I'm currently a master's student at the Architectural Association in London. I just graduated from Master's School of Design in Harvard. And I've been investigating, researching the central bus station in Tel Aviv with Talia for many years now. The whole research of the central bus station started when we had to reorganize Ram Karmi's archive. And while going through loads of dusty documents and plans, we found amazing materials dated from the 60s and 70s about the central bus station. We, we knew the station pretty well even before. Um, and we knew what everybody thinks about the station, how complicated the building is. But then we saw these, um, these drawings and they were like really beautiful, actually. The drawings are indeed beautiful with their sweeping lines and huge glass skylights. But few people see much beauty in the building as it stands today. Talia and Elad are exceptions. It's really hard to describe it without getting lost in these weird, dark alleys where you really don't have anybody around you. Almost half of it is underneath the street level, so it is dark, really dark actually, and airless. In a way, it's like a dark amusement park. You're actually afraid on one hand. And on the other hand, having like the most exciting environment around you with people from all around the world, super colorful. I would say it's a multi-sensual place. It allows almost anything or everything to happen in it. The biggest question that we asked ourselves is what went wrong, actually. So we go there and try to find the answer for that. They took me around this magical, multi-sensual, dark amusement park of theirs. At some point, they led me down to the abandoned first floor, then up a narrow ramp and through a creaky side door. I looked around and realized we were in the lobby of a deserted movie theater. So we're actually 15 meters below ground level here in what was the Grand Cinema. Uh, there were six movie theaters here with amazing names like John Wayne, Everest, Gandhi... Even though it's been more than 15 years since the credits rolled on the last movie played here, the theaters are still in great shape. The walls are covered with posters of films like Pulp Fiction and Titanic. The acoustics remain excellent, and the cushions of the red velvet seats are still pretty comfy. This forgotten glamour is testimony to the big hopes this station embodied in its early days. The planner's original idea was that passengers would pop in and catch a movie as they waited for the bus. 
but that never happened, and the cinema closed down just a few years after it opened. Today, as you can see, it's completely abandoned. Yeah, that's it. Time stood still here. The new central bus station opened its doors to the public in the summer of 1993. After nearly three decades of planning, it was shiny and new and exciting. But then in just a few short years, it became the grimiest place in town. So how does a place go from such splendor to such neglect in so short a period? Sharon Rothbard. I'm an architect, a writer, publisher and teacher who lives right near the station, 300 meters, thinks that in order to answer this question, we need to go all the way back to the days before the establishment of Israel, in 1948. Uh, we should talk about the land uh, the central bus station was built on. Uh, and this land belonged to Arabs uh, from Jaffa. It used to be an orange grove. Pinchas Abramov grew up on the outskirts of that grove. He remembers it well. Of course. It was called Abed's Grove. We used to sneak in underneath the fence, uh, steal some oranges, and then run away. Following the War of Independence, most of these citrus groves in the area between Jaffa and Tel Aviv were abandoned slash deserted slash confiscated, depending on your political point of view. In any event, the state took over the land, and Jews started moving in. Pinchas's home stood exactly where the new central bus station is situated today. My house was a special house, right on the corner of Levinsky Street, the second house from the corner. On the second floor, there was this big wall, which had a mural of the Sea of Galilee, with a fisherman fishing. It was really something. Beautiful house. What a house. Initially, the government wanted to expand a nearby neighborhood by the name of Neveshanan. But as always, the plans were delayed and stalled till they were forgotten altogether. So instead of a brand new residential neighborhood, a favela of sorts started to develop there. A slum of tents, sheds, and warehouses. Meanwhile, in a better part of town, lived a man called Aryeh Pilz. Yeah, he was an immigrant coming from Poland in the 30s. Um, and he opened up Café Pilz, which was a really famous coffee shop on the seaside of Tel Aviv. Café Pilz was the swankiest joint in town. Senior British officers came to relax over dry martinis. Elegant waiters in long tails and a bow tie would walk around serving coco vin, steak bernays, and an orchestra played the latest hits in the background. And as he spent his days sitting in his café, smoking his cigars, Pilz couldn't help notice the construction frenzy going on all around him. Tel Aviv is bursting with life by now. This is a promotional film of Tel Aviv from the late 50s. 300,000 people arrive in our town every day. Although Jerusalem is our capital, Tel Aviv is the center of industry. Once I saw a picture of New York. Well, Tel Aviv is almost the same. Apart from the fact, of course, that we haven't got skyscrapers yet. Tel Aviv was humming, and Pilz, a tireless entrepreneur, spotted real estate opportunities everywhere. So he purchased the old orange grove turned slum from the Jewish National Fund. But then there was the problem of the squatters, 
לייק פנחס. פילץ הגיע. פילץ שואו אפ, ונוודד אס אוט. הוציא אותנו. גרדיאלי הוא בוט אותם אל אוט. brought in tractors and raised the sheds to create one giant plot of land. The location wasn't ideal. Across the street was Neveshanan, a densely populated, low-income neighborhood. And in the middle of Neveshanan stood Tel Aviv's main bus station, the old central bus station. Every day, dozens and dozens of buses zigzagged through the neighborhood's narrow streets. And as often happens, this contributed to the area's decline into a hub of crime and poverty. It was clear to the municipal planners that something wasn't working. They wanted to move the station to another place while they renovate and open up the old one. So Pilz, who was a really clever guy, just came up to the municipality and told them, wait a minute, why would you move the bus station and then bring it back? Just keep it um, where it is while I will build you a new one. And Pilz had big dreams. He was going to finance the building of the new bus station by making it part of a huge mall. It was meant to be the largest bus station in the world when uh, it was um, uh, conceived. Israel was still a small country, with a population of just over 2 million. So, as you might imagine, lots of people thought the idea was absolutely insane. But Pilz was charismatic, and even more importantly, he knew all the right people. So he managed to persuade the folks at City Hall, and with their approval, he approached a 33-year-old architect. Ram Karmi. And Pilt said to him, Rami, build me a central bus station. Karmi's first proposal was relatively simple. The idea was that the station's lower level would be similar to a train station in the sense that the buses would pass right through it. On top of that, they would build apartments, hotels, offices, and in the center there would be a big park which would actually sit on the station's roof. From there on, it only went downhill. Pretty quickly, issues arose with Karmi's plan. Eged and Dan, the two rival bus companies who had become stakeholders in the project, were furious when they realized they would have to share a floor. Not a problem, said the developers. We'll put the bus companies on separate levels. Karmi had a brilliant idea, dividing the transportation between the first and the sixth floor. The Dan city buses would stop on the first floor, and Egid's intercity buses would leave from a platform all the way up on the sixth floor. So passengers transferring from one to the other would have to go through the entire building and would spend good money in the mall's shops. Yeah, it seemed logical at this time. The idea of building a huge structure, a megastructure, was very trendy at the time. And Amkami imported this idea to Israel. Pilz, in the meantime, understood that the project was going to be much more expensive than he'd originally expected. So he said, Rami, we need more spaces which we can sell. And so, in every subsequent design Karmi submitted, the station grew bigger and bigger. By the sixth draft, handed in in November 1967, the blueprint had started to resemble the behemoth we know today. In fact, I remember Rami talking about the central bus station. and saying that they wanted to build the largest bus station in the world. And I kept wondering why would anyone want to build a largest central bus station in such a small country. But this is exactly what happened. In the end, the new central bus station was designed to include eight floors, for a total of 230 square meters, or 57 acres. Which is more or less two Empire State buildings together. 
By the time Pils got all his building permits in order, architectural styles around the world had begun to change. New wisdom had it that a few small-scale public transportation hubs were more efficient than one gigantic station. And besides, there were enough examples to conclude that megastructures rarely functioned the way they were originally intended to. On top of all that, Pils had other problems. He had bought out all the squatters, but the residents in the adjacent streets were livid. Even though their neighborhood had never been particularly nice or upscale, they were concerned that the new station and all the increased bus traffic would depreciate the value of their apartments even more. That they would end up living in a cloud of smoke and fumes. And, as it turns out, they were right. This is Shula Keshet, a resident of the neighborhood. Can you imagine what it feels like to wake up to, the, to this terrifying rattling noise and I wake up and this noise doesn't stop. You sit at home, you want to watch TV and you can't hear it. You want to talk with the family, you can't talk. It's a deafening noise. Beside that, we have to, we have to shut the balconies because the people who go by in the buses can uh, practically see what's going on inside our houses. Someone knocks on the door. I can't hear it. It's awful. What can I tell you? Terrible noise, all the time. That's Simcha Nasi, who still lives directly across from one of the bus exits. He was one of the residents who complained to Pilz. And, well, you can judge for yourself. This is a recording from his living room window at 10 p.m. The new central bus station should never have been built here in the first place. Absolutely not. But Pilz was determined. And on December 14, 1967, six months after Israel tripled its size in the Six-Day War, the Minister of Transportation, the Mayor of Tel Aviv, and many other dignitaries gathered at the edge of the old orange grove and laid down the cornerstone for Karmi's creation. In what now felt like a huge country, a huge station seemed fitting, the hubris of building the world's largest bus station was in line with the general sense of post-war euphoria. In the months that followed, hundreds of workers dug foundations, laid rebar, poured in concrete, drilled and hammered, and all the while residents demonstrated outside. Pilz, in the meantime, was ready to move on to the second stage of his plan. He needed to sell the vast commercial space he was building. So we invited Jews from all over the world um, to come on and see the place uh, and get a free tour in Israel on him. Sort of like birthright before birthright. And of course, the grand finale of the trip would be a visit to the new central bus station, Pilz's new project, with the expectations that the visitors would buy a shop in the station. Pilz hoped to tap into the overflowing Zionist sentiments that followed the Six-Day War. And amazingly, he succeeded. Hundreds of people bought shops. Some of them took out loans. And others, like Marc Almog from France, sold their houses and made aliyah. We were promised a magnificent shop in a shopping center that the whole world would take pride in. Others, like Pinchas, whose house with the painting of the Sea of Galilee was demolished to make way for the station, were given shops as some sort of compensation. I got 42 meters at the central bus station. They said this shop will be something, something great. 
It's important to bear in mind that Pilz didn't lease those shops as a mall developer would today. He sold them as property. The owners registered the asset under their own names, just like buying an apartment. Over the next six years, as Pilz sold more and more of his stores on paper, the massive building started taking shape. People were excited about it. Every few months there would be a headline in the papers saying something like, A city under a roof is coming to life, or the world's most high-tech bus station due to open. But then in 1973 came the Yom Kippur War, and with it a general nationwide recession. Kikar Levinsky, the contracting company Pilz had set up to build and bankroll the project, started faltering. There was a shortage of concrete, problems with the workers' unions, and growing debt. Finally, in 1976, Pilz filed for bankruptcy, and the construction stopped altogether. By that time, the structure was already mostly built. A huge concrete skeleton in the middle of the city. Tel Aviv's grandma and grandpas all remember this place as the city's big white elephant. Now, a saga of who should take responsibility for the fiasco erupted. Public commissions were established, but the blame game went on and on. And so, for 12 years, the miserable station, as Pils himself called it, remained empty. Or almost empty. A huge colony of bats made the building their home. Gradually, it started to host all sorts of marginal parts of society. Some legal, some not so much. By the early 80s, the station had already gained its notorious reputation. It served as an underground meeting point. Huge raves and rock and metal concerts took place here. In 1983, after a decade of neglect, inhabited only by bats and punks, it finally seemed like the station was going to be redeemed. Contractor Mordechai Yona bought the project from its creditors for a bargain price of $5 million. Once again, you could hear the hustle and bustle of construction work in the empty concrete shell. Yona, like his predecessor Pilz, knew the right people, like the then Minister of Transportation, Moshe Katsav. When Katsav visited the site just a few months before it was supposed to open to the public, he said, I am certainly pleasantly surprised, and we, of course, will be happy to help you in any way to overcome bureaucratic obstacles. What Katsav was happy about was that Yona was delivering. The station was set to open more or less on schedule. Most of the real estate had already been sold back in the Pils days. So in order to make this financially viable, Yona had to build more and more and more. The huge station, like the very hungry caterpillar, just grew and grew. The total build-up area in the station is more than double the area that was authorized. That's Tzvi Shuv, a lawyer who represents many of the original shop owners in a long-standing class-action suit against the station. He's actually continuing a fight his father, also a lawyer, started. There are tens of thousands of square meters that were built illegally without building permits or even organized plans. And they were also sold to people. And there's really nothing to do about that. So what you're saying is that the new central bus station is the largest construction violation in the city? In the country. Katsav, however, promised to remove bureaucratic obstacles 
and he kept his word. Advertising brochures and radio campaigns urged the public to buy a shop. The country's biggest commercial center is on its way, they said. Don't let it start without you. And again, people who seem to have forgotten the heartache of the station's first incarnation lined up to buy a store from Yona. In the summer of 1993, 29 years after the ambitious architect Ram Karmi put pencil to paper, all the usual dignitaries reconvened at the station. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was there, as was the transportation minister, the finance minister, the mayor of Tel Aviv, and even Karmi himself, in what was the only time he ever visited the building while it was working. In a rare moment of self-deprecating humor, the opening ceremony was kicked off by releasing a giant helium balloon in the shape of a white elephant. But not everyone was amused. Here again is Shula Keshet, one of the station's unhappy neighbors. At the time they were celebrating inside, we were standing outside in a big demonstration of thousands of people, thousands of people. And we were standing and demonstrating at the foot of the central bus station of this terrible monster that is destroying lives until today. But the neighborhood residents' protest was largely ignored while all of Israel heard about the grand opening that evening on national TV. More than 30 years after Pilz had first set his eyes on the plot, the new central bus station in Tel Aviv was now up and running. It's been open ever since, but it's far from the posh shopping mall it was meant to be. There's a certain temptation to view those first years as the years when things were still working. But honestly, things never really worked here. Yona never managed to sell all the new stores he had built, so many of them stood vacant. And many of the ones that were open, especially stores located in the far corners of this vast labyrinth, were barely getting any foot traffic. You can understand why the vendors don't have many good words to say about this place. This uh, in Tachana, not good uh, working. When are they going to burn this place? There's nothing here. There's more life in a cemetery than here. It's very muznach. In Hebrew, muznach. There is no aircon, nothing. It stinks. And look at my cash register. No money. Come, look. You can't make a living here. No work, no nothing. I'm just sitting here passing the time. I prefer to work in another place than inside here in Tel Aviv Central Bus Station. And we can go on like this. Believe me, we're not short on this kind of tape. In 2002, the ground floor was closed for good. The reason? Excessive air pollution. That meant that Dan, the municipal bus company, moved up to the 6th and 7th floors, right next to Egid, the national bus carrier. So now, with all the platforms located on the top floors, the entire concept of the station, that people will trickle down through the shops on their way from one bus to the other, was gone. The lower floors of the station became ghost floors. And before long, just like his predecessor Pilz, Mordechai Yona filed for bankruptcy. Since then, the station has fallen deep in debt. 
There are real estate billionaires and banks passing the hot potatoes from one to the other, store owners suing in court, and in the middle of all of this is Miki Ziv, the station's general manager, who's doing his best to run the place. He's tried all kinds of creative solutions, cheap rates for artist studios, cultural events, conferences, but it seems as if the station is just getting emptier and emptier. We have here 1,500 stores, but only 600 are open. Because the, the building is so huge, they are not necessary. At first, the planners thought that up to a million people a day would pass through the station. Nowadays, average 50,000 people are coming. It's going down. 50,000 people. That's just 5% of the original estimate. Maybe this is the root of the problem. The developer's greed led them to sell more and more commercial spaces, which in turn blew the station's size out of proportion. Or maybe it's all just location, 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 and putting the station in the poor neighborhoods of southern Tel Aviv sealed its fate. Or perhaps it was simple short-sightedness. In the 1960s, there were only 24,000 private vehicles in all of Israel, and everybody used public transportation. Who knew then that this number would increase more than a hundredfold and reach the 2.5 million cars that crowd our roads today? When Pilz and Karmi dreamt up the project, they imagined a city under a roof. And when all's said and done, it does kind of have that vibe. Here's Talia, the architect. In a way, the fact that it's called a city under a roof kind of says it all. In a city, you've got everything. You've got the dark spaces, you've got the lit spaces, you've got the interesting bits, you have the scary bits, you have the exciting bits. And all of it just exists there, coexists there, in a way. Despite the gloominess all around, sometimes you get the feeling you can spend your whole life in here. There's a post office, a grocery shop, travel agencies. You can find a dentist clinic, lawyers, churches, market. Shoes, clothes. Artist studios, kindergartens. There's also an atomic bomb shelter and synagogues. There's a whole world in here, right under Tel Aviv's nose. It's just a shame that nobody bothers to pick up the stone and take a look beneath it. More than 50 years have passed since the idea for the central bus station was born in the creative mind of Arya Pilz and started to take shape on Ram Karmi's drawing board. Ever since, people have been trying to figure out what to do with it. Here's Sharon Rothbard, the architect again. I can certainly see how in the past 10-15 years the use of the station is decreasing. Uh, shops are closing, trade is deteriorating and gradually causing deterioration in all the neighborhoods around here. Uh, in this case there is no uh, really a winner, everybody is a loser. The architect of, the, uh, of this building, Ram Karmi, has been uh, really despised for this uh, uh, project and uh, it affects uh, very severely. Uh, all the, all the residents of the neighborhoods around it. You know, uh, they say in Hebrew, even she tipesh zorek la be'er, gamea chachamim lo yuchlu lo tzirta achutza. It means uh, a fool may throw into a well a stone which a hundred wise men cannot pull out. Rivka Karmi, Ram's widow, 
is a bit more optimistic. I believe the story of the central bus station is not over yet. Pinchas, for his part, is desperate. I'm, I'm over 80 years old today. I used to be young. I had the will to deal with them. Nowadays, I have no energy. There are many parallels between the story of the central bus station and the entire Zionist project. Entrepreneurship, creating facts on the ground, the patchwork system, a gradual move towards privatization and capitalism. In the state's case, it worked pretty well, but not so with the central bus station, at least not so far. But who knows? Maybe the station's good days still lie ahead, and the grandchildren of Ilan, Pinchas, Mark, and many more will end up inheriting a shop in the Soho of Tel Aviv. For now, while history debates whether the new central bus station is a stone thrown by a fool or a spectacular human monument, many people that we would rather forget have turned this strange and confusing place into their home. Yochai Meital. Yochai also composed some of the original music in that story. Okay, when Yochai and I were in 8th or 9th grade, we became big, big fans of Edgar Keret's short stories. Yochai grew up in Haifa, and I'm from Jerusalem, and we would often go visit each other for Shabbat. And I remember one time that we started talking about this particular story of Edgar's that we both really liked. And then we decided to write our own version of it. We created this character, I think we called him Max, who would sit and play backgammon all day long. The twist, which we blatantly stole from Edgar, was that Max was actually God. I remember being quite happy about the story and reading it out loud in class the next day. No one else was all that impressed. It was a really bad imitation of Edgar's story, and everyone knew it. But you, dear Israel Story listeners, are getting the real deal. Act 2, The Bus Driver Who Wanted to Be God. Here's Edgar Keret. This is a story about a bus driver who would never open the door of the bus for people who were late. Not for anyone. Not for repressed high school kids who would run alongside the bus and stare at it longingly. Certainly not for high-strung people in windbreakers who'd bang on the door as if they were actually on time and it was the driver who was out of line. And not even for little old ladies with brown paper bags full of groceries who struggled to flag him down with trembling hands. And it wasn't because he was mean that he didn't open the door. Because this driver didn't have a mean bone in his body. It was a matter of ideology. The driver's ideology said that if the delay that was caused by opening the door for someone who came late was just under 30 seconds, and if not opening the door meant that this person would wind up losing 15 minutes of his life, it would still be more fair to society, because the 30 seconds would be lost by every single passenger on the bus. And if there were, say, 60 people on the bus who hadn't done anything wrong and had all arrived at the bus stop on time, then together they'd be losing half an hour, which is twice 15 minutes. This was the only reason why it never opened the door. 
He knew that the passengers hadn't the slightest idea what his reason was, and that the people running after the bus and signaling him to stop had no idea either. He also knew that most of them thought he was just an SOB, and that personally it would have been much, much easier for him to let them on and receive their smiles and thanks. Except that when it came to choosing between smiles and thanks on the one hand and the good of society on the other, this driver knew what it had to be. The person who should have suffered the most from the driver's ideology was named Eddie. But unlike the other people in this story, he wouldn't even try to run for the bus. That's how lazy and wasted he was. Now Eddie was an assistant cook at a restaurant called The Steakaway, which was the best pun that the stupid owner of the place could come up with. The food there was nothing to write home about, but Eddie himself was a really nice guy. So nice that sometimes when something he made didn't come out well, he'd serve it to the table himself and apologize. It was during one of these apologies that he met happiness. Or at least a shot at happiness, in the form of a girl who was so sweet that she tried to finish the entire portion of roast beef that he brought her just so he wouldn't feel bad. And this girl didn't want to tell him her name or give him her phone number, but she was sweet enough to agree to meet him the very next day at 5 at a spot they decided on together, at the Dolphinarium in Tel Aviv to be exact. Now Eddie had this condition. It had already caused him to miss out on all sorts of things in life. It wasn't one of those conditions where your adenoids get all swollen or anything like that, but still, it had already caused him a lot of damage. This sickness always made him oversleep by 10 minutes, and no alarm clock did any good. That was why he was invariably late for work at the stakeaway. That and our bus driver, the one who always chose the good of society over positive reinforcements on the individual level. Except that this time, since happiness was at stake, Eddie decided to beat the condition, and instead of taking an afternoon nap, he stayed awake and watched television. Just to be on the safe side, he even lined up not one, but three alarm clocks and ordered a wake-up call to boot. But this sickness was incurable, and Eddie fell asleep like a baby, watching the kiddie channel. He woke up in a sweat to the screeching of a trillion million alarm clocks, ten minutes too late. Rushed out of the house without stopping to change and ran toward the bus stop. He barely remembered how to run anymore and his feet fumbled a bit every time they left the sidewalk. The last time he had to run was before he discovered that he could cut gym class, which was about in 6th grade. Except that unlike in those gym classes, this time he ran like crazy, because now he had something to lose. And all the pains in his chest and his lucky strike wheezing were not going to get in the way of his pursuit of happiness. Nothing was going to get in his way. Except our bus driver, who had just closed the door and was beginning to pull away. The driver saw Eddie in his rear view mirror, but as we've already explained, he had an ideology, a well-reasoned ideology 
that more than anything relied on a love of justice and on simple arithmetic. But Eddie didn't care about the driver's arithmetic. For the first time in his life, he really wanted to get somewhere on time. And that's why he went right on chasing the bus, even though he didn't have a chance. Suddenly, Eddie's luck turned, but only halfway. A hundred yards past the bus stop, there was a traffic light. And just a second before the bus reached it, the traffic light turned red. Eddie managed to catch up with the bus and to drag himself all the way to the driver's door. He didn't even bang on the glass, he was so weak. He just looked at the driver with moist eyes and fell to his knees, panting and wheezing. And this reminded the driver of something, something from his past. From a time even before he wanted to become a bus driver, when he still wanted to become God. It was kind of a sad memory, because the driver didn't become God in the end. But it was a happy one too, because he became a bus driver, which was his second choice. And suddenly the driver remembered how he'd once promised himself that if he became God in the end, he'd be merciful and kind and would listen to all his creatures. So when he saw Eddie from way up in his driver's seat, kneeling on the asphalt, he simply couldn't go through with it. And in spite of all his ideology and his simple arithmetic, he opened the door and Eddie got on and didn't even say thank you, he was so out of breath. The best thing would be to stop listening here. Because even though Eddie did get to the Dolphinarium on time, happiness wasn't there. Because happiness already had a boyfriend. It's just that she was so sweet that she couldn't bring herself to tell Eddie. So she preferred to stand him up. Eddie waited for her on the bench where they'd agreed to meet for almost two hours. While he sat there, he kept thinking all sorts of depressing thoughts about life. And while he was at it, he watched the sunset, which was a pretty good one, and thought about how Charlie Horse he was going to be later on. On his way back, when he was really desperate to get home, he saw his bus in the distance, pulling in at the bus stop and letting off passengers. He knew that even if he'd had the strength to run, he'd never catch up with it. So he just kept on walking slowly, feeling about a million tired muscles with every step. When he finally reached the bus stop, he saw that the bus was still there, waiting for him. And even though the passengers were shouting and grumbling to get a move on, the driver waited for Eddie and didn't touch the accelerator till Eddie was seated. And when they started moving, he looked in the rearview mirror and gave Eddie a sad wink, which somehow made the whole thing almost bearable.
And that's our episode. You can hear all our episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, this is becoming like a Tori Malatia kind of running joke, and believe me, I'm dying to stop saying it. But we are looking for a sponsor. We have a wonderful audience, people like you, who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So if you want to support our show and reach what has become a lot, a lot of people, email us at sponsor at prx.org. Before we go, I wanted to share some exciting news. We're coming to the States on another tour in mid-May with a great new live show, which we're busy preparing these days. It's all about Yom Ha'atzmaut, Independence Day. And it's kind of a fun radio and live storytelling journey through Israeli history. We have a whole bunch of performances planned all over the country, and we'll be releasing the dates soon. We'd love to come. There were many folks who worked hard on this episode. Thank you to Or Matias, Tarshisha Tzabari, Federica Sasso, Jonathan Turner, Adrian Mathewitz, and Yael Factor. To our team of voiceover actors, David Harmon, Jack Gilron, Shlomo Meital, Tzafrir Kochanovsky, Hanoch Lieperman, Wayne Hoffman, and Jonathan Zalman. And finally, to our dear friends Jake, Alana, and Matan Balin, whom I nearly stood up as I recorded Shelly in the bus stop. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and Rachel Fisher. Amir Faktor, Itai Hyman, and Katie Pulverman are incredible production interns. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. Till then, yalla bye.